is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. And as we like to tell folks, uh, the listening is free, but it costs money to make all that we do. And we are a nonprofit. And if you like what you hear, if it's a refuge for you from the noise, from the, the debates and the anger, give us some support. Go to OurAmericanStories.com. There's a donate button, $5, $10, $25, whatever you can spare. We love telling these stories and need your help. Up next comes a story from a listener in Nashville. Let's take a listen. My name is Shannon, and I currently live in Nashville, but I went to school at Ole Miss. I started doing CrossFit my freshman year of college, so my story will tie that in. Um, This story is very embarrassing, and it is something that I don't really tell a lot of people unless they know me really well. So I am now sharing this with all of you, And I am not telling you my last name because I don't want you to find me on social media. And then I would be even more embarrassed. When I was in college, I was studying for a final exam and kept getting this really bad headache. It felt like my brain was pounding. Wasn't a normal headache. Um, I also rarely get normal headaches. So it was really just this bizarre thing. But I decided I would just go to sleep, see if it felt better the next day. So the next morning, I'm in class. And same thing, just pounding headache. It was like every time I tried to absorb information, I had this headache. I was convinced I was allergic to school. Kidding. But later, I'm studying again because it's crunch time for this final. And same thing happened. So I call my mom just to kind of let her know what's going on. This is driving me crazy. Try to get some mom wisdom. Well, of course, her being eight hours away, she said, you know, why don't you go to the emergency room just to be on the safe side, make sure everything's okay, asking if I've hit my head. Um, so I get my friend Kristen and she takes me to the emergency room and we're on the way and she's asking, you know, what what could it have been? Did you hit your head? And I'm sitting there thinking and I think about how two days before I was at the gym and doing a workout that involved squat snatches and I happened to lose my grip and drop the barbell on my head. And I was thinking, oh, well, it was only 65 pounds, like... Not not that bad. It didn't hurt that badly. You know, initially it hurt, but then afterwards it was fine. And Kristen looked at me like I was crazy, like 65 pounds dropping on your head. That's kind of a big deal. So we get to the emergency room and they do a CT scan. And while we're waiting for the results, the nurse is asking me questions. And at this point... I hadn't told her about the barbell situation yet. So Kristen proceeds to tell her and the lady looks at me also like I'm crazy thinking, oh my goodness, yes, that is a very big deal. So anyways, we wait for the results and they come back and say that I had 
I'm totally going to butcher this, but it was some kind of like strained muscle at the bottom of my brain or something. I'm, I'm not totally sure. Um, I could be totally wrong. Either way, they told me they were going to give me some muscle relaxers and they could also give me a shot if I wanted to, because it would just kind of like instantly mask that pain. And then I could study. Well, fun fact about me, I hate needles. So shots, any kind of blood work, even finger pricks, hate them. I pass out nearly every time I get blood work done. So I say, no, I'm good. I'll take the muscle relaxers and just wait for those to help. Kristen says, no, she'll take the shot. So Kristen wins. I decide I'm going to, you know, put on my big girl pants and get the shot. So this time also my phone had died and I told my mom, you know, I'll call you later from Kristen's phone. So I get the shot and next thing I know, I'm surrounded by nurses in some office. Apparently I had passed out after the shot and they, I guess, carried me in there and I'm sitting down in a chair. They're all surrounding me. And once they leave, I'm kind of like sniffing and I say, Kristen, it, it kind of smells in here. And she says, yes, that is because when you passed out, you farted. And I was horrified, like so embarrassed and just so ready to get out of that doctor's office. So leaving the doctor's office, I say, Hey, Kristen, can I use your phone? I'm going to call my mom. So call my mom. Right when she answers, I say, I just got a shot and I passed out and I farted. And I hear this, Kristen? And I said, no, it's Shannon. I got a shot and I passed out and I farted. And then I look at the phone and realize I had gone to mom in Kristen's phone and called her mother and told her that. So that is my embarrassing story. And I can't believe that I just shared that with you. And you've just heard Shannon's embarrassing emergency room visit. And by the way, embarrassing stories of your own, send them to ouramericanstories.com. As you can see, there's no subject matter too frivolous for us to sometimes cover here because frivolity is a part of life, folks. And these silly things happen and sometimes we're embarrassed. Uh, my little girl is not nearly as embarrassed about such bodily functions. I wish you were. Shannon's story, a listener in Nashville, we'd love to hear from you. Again, go to OurAmericanStories.com, share your embarrassing story or any other story you'd like to share with us here on Our American Story.
This is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our series, Heroes of the Second World War. And our source material, by the way, comes from Rishi Sharma. And this young man has spent a good deal of his life traveling around the world thanks to a GoFundMe page, interviewing over a thousand Allied soldiers around the world who served in World War II, defeating the Nazi menace and Imperial Japan. With that, here's our series, Heroes of the Second World War, brought to us by our own Joey Cortez. In January of 1933, the world would forever change. Adolf Hitler was appointed Chancellor of Germany, giving way to the most extreme agenda the world has ever known. Hitler, displeased with the Treaty of Versailles ending World War I, wanted payback for the humiliation of Germany taking blame for the First World War and dissolving much of its territory. Hitler was determined to unite all Germanic people, making their master race, the Aryan people, just as powerful as it was before World War I. He set out to conquer Europe, exterminating and imprisoning his opponents, those not of the Aryan race, homosexuals, and people with disabilities. In September of 1939, Hitler invaded Poland. By September of the following year, the United States instituted a military draft, hesitantly preparing for war. Later that month, Germany, Italy, and Japan formed the Axis powers, hoping to dissuade America from entering the war. And it worked, until Japan attacked Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. Ending its neutrality, America entered the war and expanded its draft. Throughout the war, more than 10 million American men were inducted into the military to fight these evil regimes, protect our democratic ideals, and liberate an oppressed people around the world. These men, the true heroes of the Second World War, have given us the free and full lives we have today. These are their stories. My name is Joe Barnes from Rosedale, Mississippi. I was in the 36th Infantry Division, which is Texas National Guard. When we finished our basic training, they assigned us to the non-Texans, trying to fill it up, getting it ready to, to go overseas. So we were the first non-Texans to join the 36th Infantry. I was born near Carthage, Mississippi, July the 20th, 1919. So I grew up on a small farm, and my daddy had me working from that time I was about seven years old. I didn't do a whole lot before. My daddy kept me busy working most of the time. I'd go fishing and hunting sometimes, but uh, other boys around would be going fishing and hunting. Daddy would have me out in the, in the field working. I had a horse or mule that I plowed as before the days of tractors. And then we had to hold the cotton. We grew cotton and corn, hold the cotton by hand. And of course, when you harvested it, you also had to do that by hand. Pick the cotton and put it in a sack. It was hard work. We had just a, an old unpainted wooden house. Didn't have a bathroom, naturally. Or, or water didn't have running water. It was very country. People wouldn't believe that we lived like we did then. Joe was one of three students to graduate from his high school. 
he went on to community college to become a grammar school teacher and taught for two years until... The war was getting ready to start. They were drafting people to go to war. So they drafted me my second year as a teacher and was inducted in the Army 23rd of May, 1941. I was assigned to a weapons platoon, small weapons. My company had three rifle platoons and one weapons platoon. And the weapons platoon had three mortar squads and two machine gun squads. So I was assigned to the mortar squad and took training there. And I became a gunner on the mortar, which would set it up, get it leveled up, all set for firing. The assistant gunner then would drop the shell in the tube. When it went down and hit a firing pin, it went up and went where it was designated to go. April the 1st, 1943, they loaded us on a big boat and took us to North Africa. And uh, took a long time to go, about 14 days, because they did a lot of zigging and zagging to try to keep the submarines from being able to destroy the boat that we were on. So on about the 14th of May, we... Uh, landed in Oran, Africa. And then we further got training. The war was about over in North Africa when we got there, so we didn't see any combat. So um, after training till September the 9th, 1943, they loaded us on boats going from North Africa to make the invasion of Italy. And we were on the boat, I guess, three or four days. And then uh, the day before we uh, were supposed to land in Italy, they called all of us together on the boat and said they had good news for us. Said Italy had just surrendered, so they didn't think there'd be much to the invasion. They didn't do any shelling, any bombing, or anything to kind of softened up the enemy a little bit, just sent a bunch of uh, riflemen in to take Italy. The British were taking us in, so they unloaded us off of the big boat to landing craft. The landing craft told 18 or 20 people, and they took us to the wrong beach at the wrong time. So when we landed, it was still dark, and the water was about waist deep, but they dumped us out in this waist deep water and we waded it to the shore. And when we got to the shore, we knew we had to move on, couldn't stay there. So we went across the sand dunes and over a little ridge there and started digging in, digging a foxhole to stay there and wait until our troops uh, came behind us. So we did that and we started drawing a little bit of fire. The Germans couldn't see us, but uh, they could hear us. So uh, we uh, were afraid that they would find us and, and just wipe us out. So we almost made a fatal decision 
we set up a little 60 millimeter mortar to see if we could knock out that machine gun nest. But before we got it set up, it's still dark, but we see fire was coming out of a clump of bushes. And uh, after a little bit, the bushes started moving off. So there was a German tank that was camouflaged with bushes. So as soon as we saw his German tank, I told the boy just to fold that little mortar up and just get in our foxhole and stay there as quietly as we can. Because we knew if they ever saw us, they could wipe us out. We had about 18 men trying to invade Italy. So uh, we put the mortar back up and didn't try to do anything else and just stayed quiet. Seemed like an eternity. It probably wasn't over 10 or 15 minutes, maybe. If they had fired the mortar, the German tank would have targeted Joe and his men. Holding off saved their lives. We were waiting for American troops to show up. And finally, American troops did show up. They weren't our outfit. So we joined whoever the American troops were that uh, were invading. So we just attached ourselves to them for, I guess, seven or eight, ten days. And then we had a little lull in battle. It was real rough. My company really had it worse probably than we did. But we almost got pushed back into the Mediterranean Sea because no preparation had been made for our landing. And you're listening to Joe Barnes, a Mississippi native. By the way, we broadcast in Oxford, Mississippi, about an hour south of Memphis, Tennessee. Joe was born near Carthage in 1919, worked on a small family farm starting at the age of seven. I didn't do a lot for fun, he said. Daddy kept me busy. As a young man, he would join the 36th Infantry, and he found himself in North Africa and then in Italy. And we're going to continue with Heroes of the Second World War, Joe Barnes' story in his own words, here on Our American Stories. We continue here on Our American Stories with our heroes of the Second World War. And Joe Barnes is telling us his story. The Mississippi native, who was a part of the 36th Infantry, found himself in North Africa and then Italy. What happens next? Well, let's return to Joe. After several days of fight and lost a lot of soldiers, we started trying to find our outfit. So we'd ask anybody that we saw if they knew where the 142nd Infantry was. So we finally found our company. The men there were surprised to see us. They thought we were all dead. As a matter of fact, somebody had reported to them that uh, they saw Sergeant Barnes laying on the beast there dead. But we didn't lose a single man. 
So uh, we stayed, of course, with our company, and then we started uh, trying to take the mountains. The, the Germans were always on the mountain, but before we moved on any further, we had a terrible task to do. We had so many men that were killed, the squads that were supposed to take care of the dead couldn't take care of them. So they took the fighting soldiers to police up the dead. But each of us had a mattress cover, which was our casket. We'd find a dead soldier and try to get his body in the bag. And it was hot, the odor was awful. Part of their legs maybe had come off. It was terrible. So we did that for a while. Now, we were not picking up our own company because it'd be much more difficult to pick up your own dead than somebody you didn't know. But we did that for a while, and then we started moving on, trying to take the mountains, and we fought in Italy there the rest of that year, and of course, they had a pretty rough winter, and uh, we'd take a mountain, but we had a terrible time getting supplies to the men who were on the front. So uh, after, well, the only way we could get it up was on the back of the soldiers. So we'd take about half of our men, stay down at the foot of the mountain. We found a big cave there that we could all get in. And every morning we'd leave with a load of ammunition or water or rations on our backs. It'd take all day to climb the mountain to take up to the per persons who were on the, the mountain. So we'd do that for a while and then we'd alternate. The ones who were carrying the stuff up would go up on the front and the others would come down the bottom. Really the worst job was being on at the bottom of the mountain having to go up every day. And then finally, they got horses and mules in. So you couldn't get a vehicle of any kind up the mountains. And we'd put the load of supplies on the back of an animal take it to the front line, and then load a dead man on top of the mule and bring it back down to the foot of the mountain. So we did that for a long time. And of course, when winter came, they had some pretty cold weather and rained a lot. We didn't have clothes to keep us warm or dry. We nearly froze, like a lot of people did. Once we'd get to a place where we were going to stay for a while, we'd dig a foxhole. And two men would dig a foxhole together. So we'd pick the ground up and shovel it up and dig a hole big enough for two of us to get in. And once we got us a foxhole, we'd get in it together, particularly at night when it was so awfully cold and wet. We, those little dirty men would snuggle up to each other to get a little body heat. So we, we kept from freezing, but it, it was awful. And uh, finally got to a place that uh, we were stopped at the Repeater River. And we had to cross that Repeater River to keep moving forward. And the Germans had pillboxes, concrete pillboxes, on the other side of the river where we had to cross. And if we got people across, of course, they'd kill them 
And one night, one of the regiments tried to cross the river to get a foothold on the other side. And they were mowed down to kill maybe half of the men. They just, just couldn't get across. So then they assigned it to us, the 142nd Infantry, to see if we could get across the next night. We lay around till nearly midnight, waiting for orders to go to our death. That's what it would be. There's no way we could have taken it. So we lay around till near midnight, and somebody came to their senses and called off and tried to cross the Repeater River. So then they sent troops to try to go around to Anzio. Now, we were not in that group. We stayed there in the mountains, but they sent other troops to try to go around, and they had it rough also. But we finally were able to to move forward in the summer of 44. It took Rome. Our outfit didn't take it. Russians may have, I'm not sure. But anyhow, we went through Rome, and uh, Rome, the people in Italy, of course, were awfully glad to see the American troops. So uh, we moved fairly well for a while. Then they decided to pull us back to get us ready to go into southern France. And while we were getting ready for the invasion of southern France, the company commander called me to come to his office. Despite much protest, Sergeant Barnes was promoted to an officer and was sent southern France. Southern France wasn't too bad. They'd prepared an enemy force. They'd gotten a, killed a lot of the enemy. So we went into southern France, and I was there about two months before I was wounded. After a couple of months, it started getting a little rougher in southern France. When we got to the Moselle River, it, it was difficult to cause the forest. And you can't shoot a mortar out in the forest. You've got to have mass clearance, because wherever that shell impacts, it goes off. So you had to get where the shell could go up and then come down and supposedly kill the enemy. So uh, I was out in a road. That's about the only open space we had. The riflemen were in front of us then. And they were getting pinned down by snipers up in the trees, picking off the American troops. So we set up a mortar. We had to set it up out in the road, in the open. And um, the snipers, I guess, saw me. And they were probably shooting at the assistant gunner. But I was standing there by them. And they hit me in the leg. And it didn't tear up the legs. I said it just... uh, shot up some nerves and tendons, but rendered me where I couldn't keep going. So uh, that was about all there was to uh, when I got wounded in October, middle of October, 44. And we're listening to Joe Barnes tell his story we'd heard about he and his fellow soldiers and what happened in North Africa and then through Italy. And my goodness, the Battle of Anzio was brutal for us. Casualties were high, 
and not a lot of folks know about the fighting that happened in Italy, but it happened. And we're hearing again from Joe, and we're talking about Joe Barnes, a Mississippi native, and so many soldiers like him. We're chronicling here in this Heroes of the Second World War series. And these are all stories in the voices of the soldiers themselves. When we come back, more with Joe Barnes, his story, here on Our American Stories. And we continue here with Our American Stories, our Heroes of the Second World War series. And we're listening to Joe Barnes. And by the way, over 7,000 Americans were killed in Anzio. 43,000 casualties. No duck walk, folks. No duck walk. Back to Joey Cortez and more of Joe Barnes' story. Lieutenant Barnes was sent back to the United States for treatment. He had a few operations to repair some nerve and tendon damage and wound up in Battle Creek, Michigan for another operation, where he'd meet another soldier that would become a notable politician. I met Bob Dole, who had been wounded much worse than I, but uh, he was, a, I guess, the first lieutenant by then, and I don't know where I was the first or second lieutenant at that time, but anyhow, we got to know each other real well, and a lot he couldn't do, he couldn't use his right hand at all, so I'd button his britches and do anything that he couldn't do with, without a right hand. So we became very close friends and stayed that way until I got out of the Army then before he did. But from uh, Battle Creek, I went back in for my last operation. And uh, when I was being inducted, I met a real cute little nurse who enrolled me in the hospital there. And uh, it didn't take over five minutes probably, but I was kind of impressed with her. So uh, she did that. And then a little while later, she came back with a pen and a notebook. She was going to write up my case history, asking questions and finding out all the good about me. And... uh, I'd find out a little about her because I kind of liked her. So I'd ask her a few things, too. We enjoyed those few minutes together. And then before bedtime, she came back and gave me a shot of penicillin, which was routine for an operation, and uh, then gave me a back rub, made me sleep well. And by that time, I was getting where I kind of liked her. So... uh, and I had my operation the next day and came back to my room. And she had just come by maybe five minutes at a time and check on me. I had to go back then out to Fort Custer to stay until everything was healed. And I called this nurse up and asked her for a date. I guess we went out to eat. I don't remember what we did. But we talked mostly about each other to 
to get better acquainted. And uh, she told me on this first date that she was not going to be there long. She had been overseas for two and a half years as an army nurse and took care of a lot of the D-Day patients. But the war was over over there then, and she had gone back home and gotten out of the Army and worked for the VA for a while. She didn't like the VA. It was so different from the active Army in the hospital. So she re-enlisted to go back overseas. She told me all of that. said, I won't be here just just waiting for the all the paperwork to be done and then I'll be going back overseas. This time I'll go to Germany for either two or three years, I don't remember. So uh, I didn't like that because I enjoyed being with her. So we said, well, if you're not going to be here long, we better take advantage of every day we have. So we went out nearly every night for a couple of hours together. We just enjoyed being together. So... uh, After about five weeks, she got the word that her orders had all gone through and they were ready to send her home. They'd send them home for about a week to take care of any business they had or whatever. So she said, I'll be going home tomorrow for about a week. That upset me, of course, but we went ahead and went out that night. I says, is there any way in the world that you can get out of going overseas again. She thought for a minute and said, well, the only way I know if I got married, then I could ask for and get a discharge from the Army. Otherwise, I'll have to go. Well, we hadn't known each other but about six weeks. So uh, I hated all the bad to see her leave, but I thought that was awfully quick for, for getting married. <laughs> I thought about it a little while, but I just couldn't see marrying that quick. So uh, I didn't ask her to marry me. So uh, we went out that night and went home, first kissed her goodnight. And uh, then I met her the next day. She was going to leave where her folks lived to stay a few days and then go back and go overseas. So uh, I, t- I took her out to eat. We went to a little... Chinese restaurant where we had eaten our first meal together. But we didn't enjoy this meal. We were both so upset about her leaving. So I took her on then to the train station where she would catch the train. And we said, well, if if we're still both single when your tour of duty is over, well, maybe we can get together and pick up where we left off, which we thought was highly unlikely. But that's where we left it, so big hug and a kiss, and saw her off on the train. I watched that train as long as I could see it, and that's when it really hit me. I says, there goes a woman that I love, who loves me, and uh, probably never see her again. So I went on back out to camp, and I couldn't call her up when she got home, and they didn't have cell phones then because the telephone long-distance operators were on strike. So the only way you could make a long-distance call was a real, op- real emergency, and 
this was an emergency for me, for me, but I didn't think it would be for them. So I didn't try to get a call through. So the only way we could communicate was with telegram. Well, this was just three or four days before Easter Sunday. Well, I sent her an Easter lily to her parents' home, and then she immediately sent me a telegram thanking me for it and telling me she was going to be in Chicago visiting a nurse friend of hers for the weekend. Wondered if I wanted to meet her there. I sure did. I sent her a telegram telling her I would be glad to meet her. So uh, I went to Chicago on a Friday afternoon, got a hotel room, and then called her up. You can make a local call, but not a long distance. So I called her to get instruction on how to get to her friend's house. The friend had already gotten out and was working for the airlines. So I called her and talked to her and got instruction on how to get there. We visited that afternoon, the three of us, and uh, they just fixed dinner to eat there instead of going out. So we had dinner together. And then after dinner, well, she and I had a little time to be together alone. So I said, are you sure that you could get out of the army if you got married? She said she was. So uh, I just proposed, and she immediately accepted, of course. So then we went and told her friend that we had just gotten engaged. Joe and his fiance Dottie had a small wedding at her parents' house in Peoria, Illinois. They were married by her father, who was a preacher, and Joe's platoon sergeant was his best man. After a humble celebration at a local restaurant, Joe and Dottie, eager to start their life together, got discharged from the Army and moved back to Mississippi. Joe attended Mississippi State's to finish his four-year degree. He had a number of jobs in the ensuing years. As a teacher, a principal, he worked for Perina, went back to teaching, and became a superintendent for 14 years until he retired. Joe is now 101 years old. My balance has gotten real bad. Other than that, I'm in pretty good shape. So I use a walker to keep from falling down. Anything that requires or standing or walking, I, I can't do much at it. I still mow my yard. I have a three-acre yard. I still mow it. Once I get on my mower, I'm sitting. So that doesn't bother me, but I can't, can't do anything that requires standing or, or walking. I, I stay pretty busy. My wife's not in too good a shape right now, so... I try to help her all I can, but she's having difficulty walking also. I'm glad, glad I made it to 100. Thanks the good Lord every day for allowing me to live so long. And great job, as always, to Joey. And a special thanks to Rishi Sharma for cultivating and gathering over a thousand stories of Allied Soldiers. What a project, and we're happy to partner with him and bring these stories to you. And Joe Barnes, what a voice, what a story. He and his bride, Dottie, 
the way they serve the country. Dottie wanted to do it again. She was bored being stateside. She wanted to be where the action was. And so many women put their life on the line overseas and here in this country. The Rosie, the Riveters, the women who did what needed to be done. Everybody did here in this country. It's a remarkable time period. And we want these voices to be heard. Joe Barnes' story, his wife Dottie's story, our heroes of the Second World War series here on Our American Story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And today we have one of our regular features, the Relationship Hour, which is brought to us by Communio and told by J.P. DeGans. Yvonne and Richard Rice share their story with us today. Here's J.P. Yvonne and Richard are extraordinary people who came from troubled childhood homes. Yvonne's mother was married five different times. Her father was husband number four. Yvonne spent much of her childhood with her dad to escape some of the chaos in her mother's home. But her dad had his own struggles. He had agoraphobia, an anxiety disorder that causes one to avoid places that might cause panic or embarrassment. So many with this condition live isolated lives, staying home as much as possible. Growing up in such a household, Yvonne spent a lot of time by herself. Really what I remember the most about my childhood was loneliness. I was very lonely and I was very depressed. I didn't know that was the word back then was depressed, but I was very depressed. And um, I ended up going uh, around the age of 15, going and living with my mom in Connecticut. And there was um, a, a really horrible thing happened and I was attacked and hurt. And I ended up then moving back to Jacksonville. And it made my dad's mental illness of being scared to go out and being scared that anything would ever happen to me worse. And um, at that time, um, there was a new girls' school here in Jacksonville, and I started going there. I uh, you know, had a lot of fear because of the attack, and I didn't want to go to a school where there were boys and girls. And um, this school was for girls who were at risk, and it was wonderful for me. It ended up being such a wonderful experience. Um, these women, I'm still friends with some of them today. Uh, matter of fact, I'm going to see one next week, and this is 20, you know, 30 years. Oh my gosh, 30 years later. Uh, maybe 32 years later. Oh my word, how old am I? So um, anyways, but these ladies just spoke into me, and I remember the first time um, someone said to me, Yvonne, you are so smart, and I didn't know I was smart. Um, one lady uh, in particular, I remember her saying, you are so pretty. 
And I had not really heard those words before. And so it was just these ladies spoken to me. And that's really where I started finding out who Yvonne is. Um, who Yvonne is broken. Um, you know, I was as low as you could get uh, because of the attack. And so they told me based upon um, my school situation that it would take me about five years to complete high school. And I ended up completing high school in six months. Um, because when you have people who believe in you, you exceed. Richard's upbringing had its own set of challenges. His dad wasn't around much. And at the age of nine, his mother passed away. We moved, uh, my, the three youngest, my younger brother, my older sister, we moved down south with my grandmother and she, she raised us. Although she was an alcoholic, um, and she was the type of alcoholic when she drank, she would get angry, and that angry uh, anger would toward, turn usually towards me because I was the oldest male, and um, you know for whatever reason she seemed to want to vent on me and blame me for all the problems or whatever. But um, I can see the good, you know, out of her. She was she put us in a, a, a good Christian school, and she had to pay for that. And all she had was her. Um, she worked for a, uh, a telephone uh, company for many years, and that was she lived on her retirement. She did get money, of course, from the Social Security for us, but she didn't have to put us in a, uh, so, you know, I feel there was providential uh, ways in there that God was, uh, has used her. Uh, so anyway, she put, she put us in there, and that's where I learned about God and, uh, as a young person. But, um, you know, uh, I was pretty much involved in sports, normal, you know, kid as far as played tennis, played uh, baseball and uh, enjoyed that. And, but as, as I got older, she would um, almost like, um, like emotional or physical, uh, it was more of a, uh, pull you down type. When she'd correct you, it was more of a, uh, that type of uh, abuse. But um, as I got older, you know, I learned to stand up and, you know, say, look, this, this ain't right. You know, we're not, I'm not going to sit here and listen to this all day, you know, for, you know, whatever. It felt like all day, but usually it was anywhere from 10 minutes to 30 minutes, and that was a long time. And um, usually after that, you had to, uh, you know, go in your room. So Richard's being, I'll just jump in here. Um, he's probably downplaying the abuse more and not being as honest about it, it was horrible. And she beat him with a tennis racket. And then, she, and then he had to stay in the room for long periods of time without food. And she was a very cruel woman. And even though she did good of sending them to school at a private school, um, there was a lot of cruelty. Also, um, his father um, killed himself about a year after his mom died. His mom died tragically and his dad died tragically. His mom was leaving a bar and she was drunk. The um, bartender, had told her, Mary, can't, I'm not going to serve you anymore. You've had too much to drink. And um, she walked out of a bar 
drunk and walked right in front of a bus. And then dad, a year later, who was also an alcoholic, um, shoots himself and ends his life. Lots of um, addiction, alcoholism on that side of the family. You're listening to Yvonne and Richard's story, and we tell you all the time, marriage is two separate people with two separate walks coming together, strangers sometimes to themselves, let alone to each other, and all the trauma and baggage that comes along. Our relationship hour story continues. Yvonne and Richard's here on Our American Stories. Return to Our American Stories. We're listening to the story of Yvonne and Rich, brought to us by Communio. And they work hard to heal broken marriages and are remarkable at it. Go to communio.org to learn more and to J.P. DeGance's organization. And by the way, he's bringing us all of these stories. We left off learning about Rich and Yvonne's difficult childhoods, the lives they led before they met. Let's get back to the story. Their childhoods were tough, but Richard and Yvonne both came to know the Lord and started spending time together at Bible study. Anyway, so she gets up and she goes to the refrigerator and I'm like, oh, now here's my move right here. So, so I run around the other side and I said, hey, uh, I'm Richard. And she said, oh, uh, I'm Yvonne. I said, oh, I know who you are. I said, my, my brother, y'all went out last week. And uh, so she's like, yeah, yeah. So, um, so right then, you know, I could, I could you know, feel the, the good vibes and everything going on. You know, it was like, uh, she might be, you know, worth checking out. You know what I mean? So, um, so then we did a few things with the church as far as uh, little things here and there. But then I could feel it in my heart. I was like, man, I really got to ask this girl out. So I was thinking, I don't want to be rejected. You know, like most men, you don't want to be rejected. So I was like, I'm going to ask her to something, you know, godly or spiritual then she's going to feel bad because she didn't go although she she might want to reject me but she can't reject god so some way uh you know i had been going to this uh city rescue uh mission helping out there and so i was like i'm gonna ask her to go to that and uh so then i said uh can you wait for me outside in the parking lot you know i'm paying my bill and and she was with her friend and i was like i gotta get her friend away from her because i don't want to ask her and her reject me right in front of her friend so some way i don't remember i was in the parking lot with her and i said hey i'm going to this um uh, rescue mission and you know i'll be talking and you know we can uh you know hang out some if you want you'd like to go with me and she said yeah that'd be nice so um once i once we we got to the rescue mission and i started sharing i was like I'm giving my testimony like I'm in a bent, like I'm wanting someone to come alongside me, which is kind of weird because I usually just give my testimony. I, I share straight up, you know, how God, but it, I could feel it. I could sense it in her heart that 
It was almost like God was doing this, putting all this together. And I was like, oh, this is neat. It was almost effortless too, you know what I mean? It was like, it was like, it was just coming together the way, the way it all was meant to be. Richard and Yvonne were soon married and they were ready for their happily ever after. But considering how much they had each been through growing up, it's not surprising that they brought their own traumas, their own baggage, and their own ways of dealing with things into their marriage. Richard saw himself as the man of the house and expected Yvonne to obey. Yvonne was finding her footing in the world after an isolated childhood with her loving but mentally ill father. And these, in so many ways, these newlyweds were really opposites. In the early years, it was really hard because I thought, well, if you want to run the roost so bad, why am I working? You know, and he struggled for some years with work, not, not really being able to bring home. I was the, the um, provider back then, and that was hard for him. I know it really hurt, you know, hard. It's hard when men go through that transition. Um, and it was probably, that was probably one of the, I'd say the hardest times of our marriage. Um, because, you know, you start questioning, why am I with this person? Really? I mean, why am I? And Richard and I have really discussed that even in the last few years. And in our heart of hearts, it's that we truly choose to be here. Um, we don't have to be here. We are so individual. Like, I don't say, oh, he's my rock. He is not my rock. <laughs> I'm not his rock. You know, Jesus truly is our rock. But what we, we choose to be here, I want his companionship. I love um, intellectually how we can talk about the Lord and how he sees things differently than I do. Also, I just like to talk to him about other things. I'll tell him about a situation I have with a girlfriend or a situation at work and just to hear his point of view because he thinks differently than I do. And I have learned to appreciate that and not let that be um, you know, a sense of contention. While they clearly appreciate their differences, these very differences can also be a source of tension. When it comes to showing love through gifts, Yvonne wants beautiful things like flowers. Richard has gone with a bit more practical approach. So, you know, he just didn't have any of this modeled for him um, at all. Now, I didn't have it modeled for me either. However, it's in me to be a gift giver and to be attuned to holidays and just, you know, I'm real intentional. So I let him know, I said, let me tell you something right now, buddy, you better get me a gift and I'm going to tell you the, the, the times I need gifts for. Well, he did okay. I mean, he did the best he could. He would get really practical stuff. One time you got me a can opener. You got me a can opener. I mean, I'm just thinking right now I should have left you just for that. So, and an umbrella. An umbrella, anyways, but those are those romantic gifts. Clearly, these two very different people experienced some conflict in the early years of their marriage, but neither knew what was to come. Having had such difficult childhoods themselves, Richard and Yvonne had both hoped that if they raised their kids with all the love and structure they wish they could have had, everything would turn out great. However, from an extremely young age, their son Hunter showed signs of an addictive personality. 
the first time our son took codeine, he was actually nine. He was on a cough start with codeine because he has asthma and he didn't like the taste of it. And after I gave him his cough syrup about 45 minutes later, he came back and asked for more. And I said, why would you want more? It tastes horrible. And um, I never thought about the feeling he was getting. And he said, I want more because it makes my brain feel ooh so good. And I remember going, oh my gosh, you know, because codeine doesn't do that to me. Um, but I don't like any, um, drugs like that I don't I'm one Richard and I both we don't take like when the doctor gives you hydrocodone or oxycodone or anything for any surgeries we're, we're just not those people you know that want that and but for our son his brain lights up and so you know you don't make um, an opiate addict you really are born that way to have that predisposition and so you know we've had now that I've learned that I actually uh, have a lot of mercy and grace towards our son and I tell him I'm like Hunter you know you didn't ask for this you were given this brain that struggles with this but you do have a responsibility to it I'm um, just like I didn't ask for the autoimmune problem that I struggle with and yet I have a responsibility to treat it or not today Hunter's choosing to treat um, his drug addiction with drugs instead of recovery um, over the next few years, you know, we would see a little bit of moodiness, um, definitely saw now what I call the attic brain, where there was this intense um, focus, whether it's on a video game or on a TV show or on music, like intense and could not do anything else at that time. However, very brilliant. Um, Hunter is a gifted guitarist. Um, really just a gift given from God because we don't have those abilities and he's never been trained. And so we saw this gifting in him and we knew that that part of his brain, um, you know, that eclectic side was in full force. So we accepted that, you know, he was different. He was musically inclined. We were not. Um, so when he first, you know, started going through this little, it seemed like a depression we thought that some of it might just be normal. He's 14, you know, hormones kicking in. Um, but then we found out that he had tried pot and he had smoked pot at church of all things. And so um, the thing was, is that when he uh, smoked pot, it just ended up lighting up his brain where it wasn't like, oh, well, I just want to smoke pot now. It feels good. It's what else is out there. So it was a gateway drug for him. And for some it is, and for many it isn't. But my goodness, for Hunter, the parents know best about these things. And when we come back, we're going to learn more about this journey, this marriage journey between Yvonne and Rich, and now including their son Hunter, an addict, who, as we learn didn't want to treat his addiction with anything but more drugs and not recovery and not treatment. And what a, what a struggling son can do to a marriage, what a family member can do to break cracks in a marriage. Well, we're going to learn more about that here on our Relationship Hour. We continue with Yvonne and Rich's story here on Our American Stories.
And we continue with our relationship hour here on Our American Stories. And today we have the story of Yvonne and Rich and their journey as a couple. The Rices learned that their son from a young age had an addictive personality. As it continued to manifest itself, they struggled to know what to do. And my goodness, this is happening in families across America and how this kind of thing tests and can often break a marriage. Let's return to the story. As Hunter got older, his dabbling with drugs turned into a spiraling addiction, something that took over Hunter's life and his parents' lives. When I look back on it, it was tripping up the doctors that he came from such a good home. They really needed something to be wrong, and there wasn't. You know, he they kept thinking he had some trauma, and he was like, no, no trauma, I just want to get high. Like, he was real honest with them. I have to appreciate his honesty. He said, no, my parents are great, but man, I want to get stoned, and I want, you know. And so it was like, oh my goodness. So at 15, he goes to his first treatment center. And even at 15, as an adolescent, you can leave treatment centers. They cannot lock you down. And so after a few days, he left the treatment center and we went out looking for him. And little did we know that that was just gonna be one of the first times. Um, I'm gonna cry. (laughs) It was just, one of the first times that we would go out looking for him. I remember thinking when I have kids that the um, the worst thing that could ever happen is not knowing where your kid is. I don't know that death is as bad as just not knowing if they're okay, if they're being hurt or tormented or... And so I remember driving up and down the street when we were looking for him and just being terrified. And then when we saw him, we weren't even mad at him for leaving the treatment center. We were so thankful that he was okay. Um, We still didn't understand at that time how severe. Hunter's been severe from day one, but we just didn't know what it was. And so we homeschooled during that time. That was going to be the only way to get him through school. And he did fine with homeschooling. we did some over. Uh, we did some medications through the psychiatrist. None were a good idea. None of them. I had to lock up the medications in my bedroom. I would wake up in the middle of the night to Hunter in our bedroom looking for the medicine. Um, it was just constant stuff like that. I mean, I think even some of it I've blocked out. And so then um, at 18, the holidays are always tough for some reason for addicts. And um, at 18, we had to ask him to leave because it was just, and we are not those people, but um, he was just so out of control and causing such chaos in the home that um, my daughter and I went to church and Richard stayed here and waited for Hunter to come home on his birthday. It was on a Wednesday. And he asked Hunter, he said, Hunter, you got to pack up your stuff and leave because you keep doing stuff in our home that's not okay. And he was putting us at risk. And that was really hard. And I'm really proud of Richard to do it. I didn't have the guts back then to do it. I could do it now, but not back then. And so our son ended up um, just, you know, going to a friend's house and doing that kind of thing. But then he ended up going to a halfway house. And two months later, he graduated from high school, which we homeschooled through our church. 
After graduating from high school, Hunter was in and out of jail, halfway houses, and treatment centers. One day after going missing, Hunter called his parents. And he said, Mom, I, I need some help. I'm really bad. And um, so that's when heroin had, I don't know how long heroin had been in the picture, but it was really in the picture at that time. And when we went and um, got him, got up with them, he was very skinny and he was really sick. And at that time, we sent him out of state to a place. And I remember it was right before the holidays. And I thought, um, those Norman Rockwell paintings, you know, of the perfect Christmas. Like my family just wasn't turning out like I thought it should and that Hunter wouldn't be here. But I remember someone telling me that if I give him up in these hard times, that maybe I can have him in the future. You know, give him, I know it's hard right now, he's young, but you know, it's a lot easier to send him off out of state right before Christmas than to bury him. So we did it. Um, we did expect a miracle. We wanted him to come back changed. And that's not our story. It, there wasn't much change at all. And um, he came back and then just within a week was in another treatment facility in North Carolina. Hunter claimed to be doing better, so they went to go visit him in North Carolina. But when they got there, they realized he really wasn't doing any better. And soon, Yvonne understood the manipulation aspect of addicts through a support program for families. And um, I learned that if his mouth, well, how I knew he was lying is his lips were moving, you know, and I thought, oh, that's not nice. But it was true that it was just when he was in the addict brain, when he was letting that rule him, lies and manipulation. So um, within a few more years, I mean, he had just been hospitalized and jail and I and let me tell you about jail I never ever thought we would have a child that go, that went to jail and I could you can call it spiritual pride and call it pride I don't care what it was my children weren't going to jail maybe your children were going to jail but not my child and I mean we did things we did bible study in our house with our kids and we did all these great things never had alcohol in our home like we were the teetotalers and yet we're standing in line with some people who weren't great parents Right? I mean, we were standing in line with people who themselves look like they just got out of prison. Like, I'm just saying. So it has shocked me in the past if a friend ever called me and said their child was in jail. I'd be like, what? You know, and now I'm like, oh, good. Oh, it's such an answer to prayer, you know, because usually it's an addict and we need them to get stabilized. That stability, at least in Hunter's case so far, has not lasted. He has overdosed many times and one early overdose sticks out in his parents' memories. Yvonne called me and said, I think Hunter's gotten into something and I had some medicine from my back. It was a cream and he mixed something together. And so when I came home, he's sitting here on the couch and I'm like, what's wrong? And he's kind of like passing out. And I'm like, this is crazy. And then he's like, I felt like he's just barely breathing and I'm like, Yvonne's like, we need to call uh, 911 because I tried to shake him and try to wake him up. He wouldn't wake up. And so we um, 
we called the police and they came in here and they, they actually hit him in his chest, tried to wake him up and he would not wake up. And so um, they got the ambulance in here and he started coming to some and they just said, oh, we've got to take him to the hospital, you know, because this is the first time I've ever seen, you know, Hunter this bad, you know, my mind, um, you know, it's starting to take a toll on his body and mind and everything. And so they took him to the hospital and uh, I remember the doctor was tell, telling us, look, you have a drug addict for a son. That was the first time, you know, I've ever heard, you know, it was like, oh, those words are so hurtful and strong and powerful. And so... I was like, wow, Hunter, you know, you really have. So eventually he, they, they either gave him something, Narcan or something to, to get him out of it. And he started getting better. Uh, but that was the reality when it came into our home, you know, strong. We knew it was, it's always been around and we seemed somewhat high. But when he, when he went out like that, you know, almost unconscious, or he was unconscious, um, that's when it kind of really brought home reality that, look, this boy is in it deep. And you're listening to Rich and Yvonne and the effect that this struggling son, this addict son, is going to have on their relationship. We're going to learn more about in the next segment. So when we come back, more of this remarkable story, our relationship hour, Yvonne and Rich's story, thanks to Communio, here on Our American Story. continue here on our American stories and Richard and Yvonne's story, our relationship hour, and we deal with, well, real life marriages and real life problems here on this show and real life stories, because that's what you've come to expect. Now we return to J.P. DeGance for the rest of the story. Richard and Yvonne were just telling us about the time their son Hunter overdosed in their home. Here again is Yvonne. He had eaten a half a cup of this back cream that had morphine in it. And so to know that he was that desperate to get high, that there was nothing in our house. We didn't even have NyQuil in here anymore. And yet he found that back cream. We had never even thought about that back cream. When when the ambulance took him to the hospital, the doctor actually called him a junkie. And I just remember going, And she said, only three things happen to a junkie. You get institutionalized, you go to prison, or you die. And I said, no, ma'am, there's another one, and that's or you recover. And, you know, it really upset me. And our daughter was there. She was young. And to hear, you know, your brother's a junkie, like that was so upsetting. And, you know, this is a kid who went to summer camp at church. I mean, he did all the church stuff like everyone else. He was homeschooled. Um, he knew. He knows the Bible. He knows the scriptures. And yet none of that was going to change his brain chemistry. A couple of months ago, I told Richard, 
I can't have him on the street anymore. It's driving me crazy that he's out there, that I don't know where he's at. Um, he's, he doesn't look like the pictures here. You know, he's got a tooth missing. He's very skinny. Um, sometimes he has sores on him. Or a rash. Um, his liver has suffered greatly. And when we saw him in the hospital um, in July, I think it was, in August, he was in the hospital a lot, back to back. He, our son was found like just passed out in front of someone's front lawn, discolored because of the drugs in his system. He was then found a week later in a um, grocery store parking lot, again, not breathing, and they brought him back to life. He was found again a week later. I mean, it just, it March and the summer was really tough because it was just happening over and over. And there was a, there's been times here lately that we've asked God to just take because he's suffering so bad. And we are too. And But that hasn't happened. He's still here. And um, it's just, it's hard because we try to go on about our day like everything's okay. But it's playing in the back of my head every time I, I get a text or I get a phone call. Or if the police drive by real slow, I feel like that's it. This is it. We have prepared um, her to know that we might have to bury our son. We've talked about it. We have a plan in place because we have a terminally ill kid, you know, who can't seem to get it together. The life of an addict becomes a cycle. Hunter has been in and out of rehab or jail some 50 times in the last few years. Richard and Yvonne try to be there for Hunter when he asks for help. Talked with him some, and then I talked with Yvonne and I talked, and we said, well, yeah, he's at that point again where he's wanting help, so we got him into another facility, uh, and, you know, he, within a few, few months, he got recharged, and he's back out there again, and there's nothing we can do as far as, you know, changing that. Uh, I'm more of a, you know, just a standard father that just says, you know, you're going to do it until you get tired of it. And Yvonne's, you know, she's more of a one to be active and involved. In it. And I'm like, Yvonne, this is just, you know, hurts me, it hurts you. You know, why are you, you know, you got to learn to step back. You know, you sure call him, talk to him and, you know, maybe go to lunch with him now and then. But, you know, you're only hurting yourself and, and. You're trying to push Hunter to be something he's not. He's, you're making him angry. You're making him upset. And these are all my logical things that are coming to my mind. I also have to have grace because she has to handle it the way she wants to and the way she's going to. But I can't let her go but so far. The ups and downs of life with an addict can cause a tremendous amount of emotional stress on their loved ones, both in terms of the terrible things they see and the unknown things they fear. Such trials can drive the couple apart, or it can bring them closer together. 
Richard and Yvonne, as different as they are, have chosen to turn towards each other. It's really been intense for about four or five years now. And so Richard now though was like, wow, I have to be more involved because Yvonne's not making it, Yvonne's falling apart. And so during, during that time, he though had to pull away a little bit just to protect himself. And he doesn't always do it well or right. And so I remember just coming and talking to him and saying, look, either it's okay that we deal with it differently, but we're either on the same page or this isn't gonna work because I am not going through this life alone. I am not going to the hospital again by myself or jail or whatever it is. And, and you know, we'll get on the same page of how, like, let's sit down and talk about it when it happens. Cause see, these are traumatic events. Like we get a call from the hospital. We don't get to say, oh, well, Saturday night Hunter's gonna be in the hospital. I mean, this always happens when you have other stuff going on. And Richard said, yes, I'll be there. And I said, I need you there for me. This is what I need. And he said, yes, I'll be there. Well, what was interesting is just a few days later, he got the opportunity to be there because Hunter was in the hospital and we both went. And you know, I think too, he got to see, oh my gosh, Yvonne's been doing this a long time. No wonder she's worn out. Like I've been doing this from the very beginning. And it's so hard to watch someone in front of you killing themselves and you can't do anything about it, nothing. And I grieve, I grieve terribly. <laughs> nothing has been normal with him. We haven't done anything normal with him in so long. I mean, besides taking to eat, we can't have normal conversations. He doesn't, the addiction won't allow him to care about anybody. When he stopped by the other day because his phone broke. He had lost all of his clothes. He only has one outfit. He was in the backyard with the water hose washing his hair, drinking out of the water hose. And I just thought this shouldn't be. That's my son. <laughs> So I had him come inside and eat and drink. He was so dehydrated. He's probably lost 40 pounds in a month. I just can't believe how fast he can lose that much weight. And uh, I offered him help. I gave him some ideas of how I could help him with a treatment center or a halfway house or even a homeless shelter. And he said, no, mom, I don't want that. So he, I walked him outside as he left on foot. He doesn't drive, he hasn't had a car. He had a truck for two months and that was it. And that was at the beginning of the year. And he drove, he walked away. And as he's walking down the road, he's yelling, He's yelling black back at me, I love you, mom, you know? And I, and I think, is this the last time I'm ever gonna see him? That's how it is with Hunter. You do feel like this might be the last time. And um, it just really hurts. I mean, it's like a grief that we can't get out of. It's like torment. 
How do Richard and Yvonne continue on in their life and marriage amidst such grief? We're in it for the long haul, you know what I mean? We're, we're committed no matter what, you know, it, it doesn't matter if the world decides they're all gonna go somewhere. And, I mean, I feel like I'm committed, you know, it's, it's not, nothing's gonna stop me. I mean, sure, it hurts and um, you wish you could change it, but at the same time, you know, you try to make the best of it. You know, you, it, it's like we're still going to enjoy life to the point that we can enjoy life with having these disabilities in our life, having a son uh, live and act like that. You've been listening to Yvonne and Richard Rice and the story of their struggles with their son, Hunter, and how they keep it together. There are times lately, Yvonne said, we've asked God just to take him. He's suffering so bad, we are too. And yet these two keep it together. They show each other grace. And all the couple together are teaching us all how to to struggle, how to get through struggles together. Richard and Yvonne's story here on Our American Stories. And you can go to communio.org to find out how to heal marriages, deal with deep and profound marriage problems and issues. This is Our American Stories.